Watch out! What do you think a good way to start a sermon is? You know, there's a lot of different ways you could start a story or a sermon. In fact, you can train yourself in giving public speeches and learn all sorts of different methods for how do you get people's attention. Now, of course, I had one professor tell me in church, you really shouldn't need to do that because the people have already come to listen. Especially at the beginning of the sermon, that's when everyone is tuned in. Now, maybe later on in the sermon, I should yell at you. But for the most part, we would assume, I already have your attention. If you were trying to tell the story of Jesus, where would you begin and how would you get people's attention? There's a lot of different ways you could start the story of Jesus. If you were telling the first sermon of the gospel to someone who's never heard it before, you could use a lot of different methods for beginning the story. And in fact, in the Bible, we have four different examples of how you could start this story. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one of them is telling the gospel story the story of Jesus, and yet each one begins in a different way. This is where Mark begins, Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace to you all through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see how Mark begins with urgency? The arrival of God's kingdom in 2024, in your lives, in the beginning of a new year, starts with God getting your attention, cutting to the chase, getting you ready and urgent to focus on Jesus more than anything else, to listen to the story of Scripture carefully, and to expect that your heart and mind will be transformed. Mark wants us to focus, first of all, on the central figure, Jesus of Nazareth. But he doesn't begin by calling him Jesus of Nazareth. 
He begins by calling him Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. This is the beginning of the gospel for Mark, Jesus. They used to call Mark Stubby Fingers. That was his nickname. And it was probably because he had thick, short little fingers, what I would picture as a working man's hands, rough, rugged, and to the point. That's how I picture him. Now, there's some influence probably in his writing that came from Peter, who is described as like a mentor or partner in the narrating of this gospel. So it also has Peter's personality perhaps coming through in his get-to-the-point preaching. But here is the man with stubby fingers being rather blunt. In chapter 1 alone, there are 45 verses. And in those 45 verses, John Mark has already covered the coming of John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, the calling of the first disciples, and a series of miracles that begin at sunup and continue into the evening of the next day. Casting out demons, healing the sick, preaching throughout all of Galilee, cleansing a leper. And we've just begun. If you turn to the other Gospels and compare, Mark has gotten through the introduction of Jesus, the calling of disciples, the casting out of demons in just 20 verses. Matthew can hardly get through the genealogy of Jesus in 20 verses. Luke doesn't even have Jesus conceived in the womb of Mary in 20 verses. And John is still pondering the creation of the world in 20 verses. So you can see what's unique about Mark is that he wants to get to the point and get us focused on Jesus. And I think in a time that we're living in where attention spans are growing shorter and shorter, this is a good gospel. A time where we are so easily distracted, where we can hardly watch one YouTube video before we're bored and we're clicking on the next one, where we can hardly get through a show and we're just right on to binging the next one because we don't have any patience to wait for the next episode to come out the next week. Yeah, in 2024, you're going to be challenged with a lot of urgency, distractions, and busyness in your life. And Mark wants to make sure he doesn't lose out on God's place in it all. So he gets his stubby fingers to the work and grabs your attention. It's all about Jesus. Jesus, who he calls the Christ, the Son of God. He calls him the Son of God so that we would know from the get-go that this is a spiritual story. It's a story of more than a man. It's God's intervention in human history to send his own being, his Son, into the world to deal with sin with the devil, and with death itself. 
He also calls him the Christ, which means the king. The one who was promised through the Old Testament. The one who would, it was said, would come to bring peace in all the world. The one who will be the king of all other kings. All of their presidents, all of their congressmen, all of their governors. Jesus is the king, the promised anointed one. And yet let us never forget that he came from Nazareth. Next Sunday we'll talk about Jesus' baptism. In the baptism of Jesus, he's introduced as Jesus from Nazareth. Nothing fancy. No grand titles, not son of God, not Christ the king, but just a man from Nazareth. And so the story tells us there's more behind the scenes than we will ever see or we could ever fully ponder. That the Christ, the son of the living God, comes as a normal human being and is baptized in the water with all the other normal human beings who are sinful and unclean. He wants us to focus on Jesus. And this is where the gospel begins, alerting your attention to Jesus and sending you into the new year with urgency to anticipate. Where is Jesus going to show up in your normal story? Where is he going to be dealing with the spiritual battles as God's own son in your lives? Where is he going to demonstrate and prove to you that he's king and nothing else is? Well, if I were to tell this story, I think I'd probably tell the long version because you know how pastors are. They tend to tell the long version. You ask them one simple question and 15 minutes later you have a whole sermon and you're still not quite sure if he answered your question. But what would you say? Would you tell the long version of Jesus? Or is there a way you can tell the short version? Mark was the type with his stubby fingers to cut to the chase, to cut right to the point. And so in the second verse, in just One and a half verses, he's able to summarize the whole Old Testament. Now, what pastor could do that? What pastor could stand up here and and pretty soon 20 minutes have gone by and I haven't even gotten through Genesis chapter 2? But in one verse, he summarizes the Old Testament and he melds together three passages into one. He says it's the prophecy of Isaiah, but he's actually melding together three different Old Testament quotes from Exodus 23, from Isaiah 40, and from Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Make his paths straight. And what Mark wants to do by just summarizing the Old Testament in this one verse is to show you that the arrival of the gospel 
in your life is part of a bigger story. That before we can have God deal with our day-to-day stories, we've got to remember that our day-to-day stories relate to a grander story. Something that dates back to the beginning of time. A long, long time ago, to us in a galaxy far, far away, there was a people living in Egypt, and they were slaves to a king called Pharaoh. And with just one little reference, Mark tells you that God rescued those people, and he sent his angel to guard them and protect them on their journey as he brought them out of slavery toward his destination. That's Exodus 23, verse 20. In the second reference from Isaiah 40, he then reminds his readers that that journey didn't go so well. That along the way, as God was sending them toward freedom, they got lost. They got lost, not just literally, but spiritually. They got lost in sin. They got lost in idolatry. And they got lost in rebellion. And so God sent them into captivity. And Isaiah talks about this captivity that the people were going to be in and how God alone would be the one who could free them. That there's this voice crying out in the wilderness. God's coming for you. Be ready. And he cries out in the wilderness because God's people aren't going to be found in the city anymore. They're not going to be found in the temple anymore. They're not going to be found in the place you would expect them. They're going to be lost in the wilderness again. And then Malachi closes this thought by saying at the very end of all the Old Testament that suddenly the Lord will come to his temple. And we just sang it in the hymn that we we're singing before the sermon that suddenly the Lord will appear in his temple and we are the saints before the altar bending and suddenly God appears and we worship him. But Malachi tells us that when he appears, it's a rather frightening sight. He comes to purify his people, that is to awaken them to their sin sickness that has brought them into captivity and purify them and set them free so that they would worship him alone. And this coming of the Lord will usher in the end of the world, a final event which will be apocalyptic and the world will end. Do you see how Mark likes to get to the point And if you're not slowing down to pay attention to every single verse, you might miss that he is throwing a whole bunch of stuff at us in just two verses. If I were to ask you, what's your story? Where would you begin? Are you the type of person that would want to tell the long story? Are you the type of person to cut right to the short version? Where is your story of the Lord visiting you and leading you by his angel on a journey? Where is your story of you getting lost 
and ending up in rebellion? Where is your story of the Lord suddenly and alarmingly inserting himself back into your life and saying, pay attention to me? That's what the gospel is doing. That's where it begins. That's the epiphany of the spirit. Like the magi who were following that star, not fully knowing what God was going to show them. But when it was over, they were never the same. You know, the phrase cut to the chase actually comes from silent films. When we use the phrase cut to the chase, we usually mean get to the point or let's move on with things. But originally it was coined by a silent film director, Hal Roach. Hal Roach was probably most famous for his Laurel and Hardy films. And he began in silent films and production in the 1920s. And it was at moments in those silent films when the executive producers thought it was going too slowly and the audience might get bored that they would say, cut to the chase. And of course they meant, move on to the chase scene. And so the director would then cut and they would move the action to a sequence with a chase scene or some action so that the audience would be grabbed again. Watch out. It's that moment in the sermon where there might have been a lull. Mark's a cut to the chase type of director. And in the gospel here, as we come to verse 4, he's made an executive decision to jump over the conception of the baby Jesus, to jump over the birth of the baby Jesus, to jump over the childhood of Jesus, and come right to his adult ministry, beginning with John the Baptist. It's like an opening scene in a movie where the director you know, has Tom Cruise be the first face you see. And it's Tom Cruise in the middle of explosions and flying on a motorcycle. It's that kind of get-your-attention appearance, only it's not Tom Cruise that's in the story. It's maybe something more like Christopher Lloyd, if you've ever watched Taxi or Back to the Future. It's this kind of strange character. It's not like other people. He's in the wilderness. He's dressed in camel hair. He's eating grasshoppers in the wild. And he keeps on crying out that people should repent. What would you think of a man out in the wilderness wearing a camel's jacket, eating grasshoppers, and saying, repent. He's the type of preacher that preaches like it's the end of the world. I mean, what is his deal? What is John's deal? That he is suddenly acting like this world is going to end. I mean, for all we know in Jerusalem, Judea, yeah, things aren't good. 
They've got problems with the Romans. They've got problems with taxes. They've got problems with work and economy. They've got problems with King Herod. But is life really that urgent? John the Baptist sees the arrival of Jesus Christ as the end of the world. And that's probably how we should all see it. For God to insert himself into human history and deal with the problems of sin and slavery and death is a world-ending event. And it, in fact, is so world-ending that it is meant to end your worlds, to end the worlds of people who think the world will never end, to end the world that the crowds are living in, where they have no sense of why today matters more than tomorrow, why Jesus is real and pertinent to every conversation, every moment, every event, every story, that you can never begin or end your story without Jesus. That there's no time to waste in dealing with this message. It's a wild message that's out in the lonely places. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in the temple with the priests and the scribes. It's not even, in a sense, just in these pews in this nice warm church. It's a message that drives you out there, or even more so in here, to find the wild and lonely places in your heart. It's a message that is strange and uncomfortable, like wearing camel skin and a leather belt and eating nothing better than grasshoppers. And it's a message that changes your mind and redirects your heart, which is why John said, repent. He's at the Jordan River. He's calling the people to come out to the beginning of their story because that's where the story of Israel really began. Before it got all the way off track, God had brought them in through the Jordan River. And now he's telling them all to come back out, and God is starting over. And he's washing them in the water. They're confessing their sins. They are being transformed in their heart and mind, turning away from the life and world that they once knew, which has ended, and getting ready for Jesus. And that's the message of John the Baptist. That's where John, Mark cuts to the chase. And that's where the arrival of the gospel can start this year for you with a focus on how Jesus is reaching your heart and your mind. You know, the gospel of Mark really is better translated the gospel according to Mark. Which is to say that it's the gospel of Jesus, Mark says, but it's according to Mark's version. If I were to ask you, what is the gospel of Jesus according to you? Which is to say, every one of us has been affected in a slightly different way by Jesus' arrival. Some of us might be like Matthew, deeply reflective, 
reflecting on the genealogy, the history of God's planning and promises dating back to the beginning, the details and illusions. Or maybe some of you are more like Luke, you're more emotional. And like Luke, you're thinking of God's intervention in people's emotional lives, Jesus' compassion ministry for the broken, the hurting. Or maybe you're deeply visual like John, and you want to see Jesus in visual images as the light of the world, the water of life, the shepherd who leads you to still waters. But if you're like stubby-fingered Mark, you know that you have a story where Jesus gets in there all of a sudden through those working man's hands to grab you by the bootstraps, to cut to the chase, to do something to transform what's happening in your life. Amen.